This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bell. Dr. Bell is an easy-to-use mobile and web solution that truly simplifies the way you do medical billing. Join over 1,500 physicians already using our billing software to save time, boost productivity, and earn more. Visit drbill.ca. That's dr-bill.ca for more information. I'm Dr. Maniza Walti, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with two of the authors of a practice article on the cardiovascular benefits of low-dosage acetylsalicylic acid, or ASA. The article is published in CMAJ. Dr. Priya Koyalpillai and Dr. Sudhir Nishtala have joined me from Calgary to discuss. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi there. So let's dive right into the conversation. First off, Priya, under what circumstances is ASA typically prescribed in secondary prevention? There are multiple circumstances, and I like to think of breaking them up into cardiac conditions and non-cardiac conditions. And so the cardiac conditions often include patients with an acute coronary syndrome, such as a myocardial infarction or unstable angina. And even patients with stable cardiovascular disease who have undergone revascularization, either via coronary artery bypass or stenting. With regards to non-cardiac conditions, these include an acute occlusive stroke, peripheral artery disease, or carotid artery disease. And I think it's also important to mention that there's some potential benefits of aspirin in patients with non-atherosclerotic CVD, such as atrial fibrillation or venous thromboembolic disease. So you mentioned some of the benefits uh, of ASA in patients, and I know Whenever having a discussion about starting a medication for a patient, it's always important to weigh the risks and benefits. So, Sadir, what are some of the risks and benefits of using ASA for secondary prevention for cardiovascular disease in particular? And how well established are these benefits for secondary prevention? Yeah, so I'll kind of just talk firstly about uh, cardiovascular benefits of secondary prevention ASA. And so that is truly well established. Um, And so looking at that, although some of the data is a bit dated, uh, one of the more comprehensive and robust reviews of secondary prevention uh, use uh, with ASA stems from a BMJ article in 2002 uh, that was um, a meta-analysis performed by the Anti-Thrombotic Trialist Collaboration. And so with that, they did a meta-analysis that included uh, patient data from 195 randomized trials among 135,000 high-risk patients with prior evidence of cardiovascular disease, including MI, stroke, TIAs, and other high-risk groups. And so what they actually found was... Uh, with antiplatelet therapy, primarily aspirin being used, they found significantly reduced uh, risk of subsequent vascular events, including non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and vascular death by approximately 22%. So in, in absolute terms, antiplatelet therapy led to avoidance of approximately 40 vascular events per 1,000 patients, which included prior MI, acute MI, TIA. And that's also... we. In, in terms of further data, there's a study published in the American Journal of Medicine in, in January 2008 that looked at 9,800 patients, similarly with a systematic review of six studies, and found a 21% reduction in recurrent atherosclerotic events and 13% reduction in all-cause mortality. 
So I think the, the benefits are quite robust that we see and well established with secondary prevention. The concern being obviously that bleeding is a potential risk. And so there's several studies that did look at that. And in the, in the archives of internal medicine back in 2002, they found that aspirin, although reducing all cause mortality by 18% um, and myocardial infarctions by 30% and strokes by 20%, there's actually found that it is two and a half times more likely um, risk of gastrointestinal tract bleeding with ASA. And there's a British medical journal article in 2000 actually suggested that gastrointestinal hemorrhage occurred in 2.4% of patients taking aspirin compared with 1.4% taking placebo at a 20-month therapy duration. So there is an increased risk of bleeding that's apparent, but I think ultimately we do find that um, the benefits in cardiovascular event reduction and secondary prevention ASC I think certainly exceeds uh, the risks associated with GI manifestations as, as an adverse effect related to aspirin therapy. So you mentioned very eloquently about the benefits of ASA for secondary prevention. For a patient that is concerned themselves about the bleeding risk associated with long-term ASA, how would you address that and what kind of points would you bring up in the conversation? So I think it's important for the patient to understand um, the risk of subsequent vascular events that can occur with known cardiovascular disease. And so based off of the data that we have, we are seeing that a, that there's a mortality benefit, so a reduction in death that's quite significant that can approximate greater than 10% or at least a 20% reduction in recurrent vascular events with aspirin. And so weighing that against the potential risks would be the risk, particularly of gastrointestinal bleeding. And so that risk of bleeding in absolute terms is about in the range of one and a half to 2% or potentially two times the increased risk. But in relative terms, it's actually a small increase from baseline, not even taking aspirin. And so the the risk would also be increased if somebody's had a prior bleed or is on concomitant therapy that would increase the risk of bleeding. And we need to be mindful of that as doctors as well as um, just understanding what the baseline risk for bleed is. And there's, you know, ways to mitigate that. And that can be with the perhaps the prophylactic use of uh, H2 blockers or maybe discontinuing other therapy that may be at increasing risk for the patient, including NSAIDs. So what is the normal dose of ASA that's recommended for secondary prevention? So doses range from anywhere from 75 to 325 milligrams a day. And, um, you know, while experts say that doses within this range are safe, the lower the dose, the lower of bleeding rates you'll see. To answer your question specifically, commonly you'll see 81 milligrams a day prescribed in the context of low-dose aspirin. And, uh, you know, we were reading about this, and there's actually an interesting trial called Adaptable coming out of Duke University in 2020, uh, which is assessing the optimal dose to prevent heart attack and stroke. And so they're looking at doses ranging from 81 to 325 milligrams a day. So we'll stay tuned to see what the results from that show. And so I can understand and appreciate that the benefits of secondary prevention with ASA are well documented, especially for certain patient populations. 
Moving on to a slightly more hotly debated topic, primary prevention. So in in terms of primary prevention, the data is continuously evolving. Um, In terms of guidelines at present, uh, both the thrombosis 2017 and CCS 2011 guidelines, antiplatelet guidelines, do not recommend the routine use of ASA to prevent ischemic vascular events. Um, They do note that in special circumstances in patients without manifest vascular disease, that have a high vascular event risk with low bleed risk, ASA can be considered, but that's based off of low quality evidence, class 2B level C evidence. So in terms of our current guidelines, we don't actually have robust evidence to be using it as primary prevention. Unfortunately, the CCS 2018 guidelines did not um, update our understanding of what to do in terms of primary prevention ASA. So just to reiterate, so primary prevention is preventing disease in people with risk factors who have not yet developed clinically manifest cardiovascular disease. So historically, in an informal manner, patients may have been considered for ASA primary prevention merely by their clinician's gestalt, where they may feel based off of a pre-existing cardiac risk factor, i.e. their ethnicity, family history, lifestyle, Uh, that may pretend maybe an intermediate or high risk for developing cardiovascular disease. I think a more reliable estimation of this uh, risk can be done formally by clinicians using like cardiovascular risk scores. That would include like the Framingham risk score, Reynolds risk score, the ASCVD, or the SCORE risk score, which is based out of Europe. Each of these risk stratifiers are based on the experience of asymptomatic middle-aged adults, 40 years or older, looking at metrics such as gender, age, blood pressure, lipid profile, smoking history, and diabetes, et cetera. I think the real question that needs to be answered is not in the low-risk population using ASA for primary prevention, but probably more the intermediate to high risk. And so does primary prevention with ASA provide these benefits in terms of cardiovascular outcomes, or does the bleeding risk counterbalance that or outweigh it? So I guess the question you're asking. And so we do have uh, some evolving data that's come out uh, recently. There's the ARRIVE trial that came out uh, in September 2018 in the Lancet. It was actually a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in middle-aged men and women that actually had moderate baseline risk, but importantly did not include diabetics or those patients that had a high bleeding risk. Their estimated uh, cardiovascular event risk at 10 years was estimated at greater than 10% by using the Framingham risk score and the ASCVD. And they looked at 12,000 patients uh, randomized to ASA or placebo, really looking for a composite outcome of uh, time to first occurrence of cardiovascular death, MI, unstable angina stroke, or TIA. And the safety endpoints were hemorrhagic events. And so what it did find was there was not a significant difference in the primary endpoints in comparison of aspirin versus the placebo group. The the GI events did occur statistically higher in the aspirin group versus the placebo group, however. The problem with the trials is that the event rate was much lower than expected, which is probably reflective of the contemporary risk management strategies, where there's better management of blood pressure, more aggressive uh, optimization of lipids, as well as probably earlier interventions in the context of this as well. And the study is only followed for about a median of five years, so it may have not accounted for, you know, several years that patients may have had cardiovascular events. 
in addition to that, there's been a, a series of systematic reviews and meta-analysis, uh, one that was published in JAMA in 2019 that encompassed 165,000 patients in a meta-analysis of 13 trials. This did include uh, patients that had diabetes. And overall, what it found was aspirin use was associated with a significant reduction in the composite cardiovascular outcome compared with no aspirin. However, aspirin use was associated with increased risk of major bleeding compared with no aspirin. And so there's also another trial that came out uh, in 2019 as well in uh, JAK, which also compared uh, similarly a large volume of patients and demonstrated compared with control, aspirin is associated with similar all-cause death and non-cardiovascular death, but a lower risk of non-fatal MI in an ischemic stroke. However, aspirin is associated with higher risk of major bleeding, intracranial bleeding, and major GI bleeding. And so based off of these systematic reviews conducted, I think we still find that there's quite significant risk of bleeding that can occur um, with a bit of a challenge in determining whether or not we have a robust outcome in terms of cardiovascular event reduction in primary prevention. At this point, despite kind of a large volume of data based off of these systematic reviews, I think there's still going to be equipoise in terms of primary prevention, but certainly if the primary prevention is to be used, it's going to be to be considered in patients that have a high risk of cardiovascular event within a 10-year time period as well in patients that would have a low potential for bleed. So being mindful of the potential bleeding risk in these patients as well. But once again, I think we have a bit of clinical equipoise in determining if truly in the high-risk patients, they derive much of a benefit. I do find it's usually a push-pull between cardiology and hematology, and here we are sitting on both sides of the conversation. So it's quite interesting. For recommendations of patients of different ages, do they change based on age or the chronicity of how long these patients have been taking ASA? I think when you're looking at answering this question, it's important to remember that age is just a number and factoring in a patient's profile, such as their bleeding risk, their life expectancy to benefit from uh, ASA, as well as their geriatric polypharmacy profile are all really helpful uh, when a healthcare practitioner considers ASA use. The current data supports lifelong ASA use for secondary prevention. However, as it was previously discussed uh, today, it's important to have ongoing surveillance for GI bleed history and uh, to factor in you know, other aspects such as NSAID use, uh, systemic glucocorticoids, or uh, concomitant anticoagulation, for example, if there's a new diagnosis of AFib or uh, a DVT. And interestingly, the ASPRI trial in 2014 looked at aspirin use in the healthy elderly. So this was a group of patients that were above the age of 70, um, and they didn't have a history of cardiovascular disease, dementia, or disability. This is essentially looking at primary prevention in this age group. And interestingly enough, there was a higher mortality in the group that received aspirin, although the deaths were primarily cancer-related. And so this data needs to be interpreted with a bit of caution. In your article, just speaking about particular patient populations, you mentioned a little bit about the geriatric 
patient population that has to deal with polypharmacy. You mentioned in your article about patients with diabetes as well. What's important, in your opinion, to keep in mind for these patients in particular? In some circles, historically, diabetes is actually considered to be a coronary heart disease risk equivalent. Uh, in fact, like back in, in, in the U.S., under the National Cholesterol Education Program, the NCP ATP3 guidelines, which was back in the early 2000s, they actually considered diabetes to be a coronary heart disease risk equivalent. And so a coronary heart disease risk equivalent are basically patients that are thought to have a 10-year risk for MI or coronary death greater than 20%. So looking at the CCS 2011 guidelines, um, they actually don't recommend routine use of ASA um, for primary prevention for vascular ischemic events in patients with diabetes as well. Currently in the CDA guidelines published in 2018, that being the Canadian Diabetes Association guidelines, they also, uh, in keeping with the CCS 2011 guidelines, suggest not routinely using ASA in this patient population. And that's based off of uh, several studies, one being in the Annals of Internal Medicine 2016, as well as a British Medical Journal article in 2009. Most recently, there was a trial, uh, the ASCEND trial, published in um, the New England Journal of Medicine in August uh, 2018, which looked to try to answer that question, whether or not there's any evidence uh, in using ASA in primary prevention in the diabetic population. And so what they looked at is 15,000 diabetic patients with no evidence of cardiovascular disease and randomized them to ASA 100 milligrams or placebo. The primary efficacy outcome was the first serious vascular event being MI, stroke, or TIA, or death from, or death from any vascular cause, excluding any confirmed intracranial hemorrhage. And the primary safety outcome was the first major bleeding event. And at seven years, they found a 1.1% absolute risk reduction in serious cardiovascular disease events, which was counterbalanced by an associated 0.9% increase in major bleeding events in the intervention group. Of note, the majority of participants in this study were taking statins and on antihypertensive therapy, which would be expected in this contemporary higher-risk population. So it's important to kind of consider that this is a new trial um, that looks at kind of the evolving data that we use, that we have in terms of primary prevention, use of statins, as well as more aggressive blood pressure lowering drugs. Uh, despite the increased baseline CV risks associated with diabetes, there's no compelling data, I think, to suggest primary prevention use of ASA in this population. And this would be in agreement with current CDA CCS guidelines, which actually did precede the ESM data. That's very interesting. And it seems like primary prevention still remains a topic that's hotly debated despite evidence for it and against it. So in my day-to-day -day life, I am still a hematology fellow and quite frequently see patients pre-op, so pre-surgery. So what about surgery? What's the evidence? I'm glad you brought that up because uh, there's definitely some debate and, you know, there's Patients who undergo surgery are at an increased risk of bleeding, but uh, depending on the patient, they're also at an increased risk of perioperative MI and VTE. Uh, so I think to answer your question, it's helpful to break up patients into those undergoing non-cardiac surgery and those undergoing cardiac surgery. 
So we know from the POISE-2 ASA trial that patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery um, who took preoperative ASA didn't experience a significant reduction in their risk of post-operative MI or VTE, but they did have a 23% increased risk in major bleeding. And I think it's important to underline that this is uh, in a patient population who did have a pre-existing indication for ASA. The only exception uh, was for patients who had a recent coronary stent or had uh, a carotid endarctectomy. So, you know, that's one patient group, but then there's the other group of patients, and and those are the ones that have recently undergone a cabbage. And for them, ASA actually is recommended within six hours after surgery to reduce graft occlusion. So is there any evidence to giving ASA perioperatively? I think one thing we wanted to highlight was um, patients who experienced uh, myocardial injury or ischemia after non-cardiac surgery, those patients should be on an ASA. And so if you look at the CCS guidelines, postoperatively, patients will get a troponin level done. And for those that have a peak troponin um, of 0.03, they should be uh, treated with ASA long-term because it's thought that that peak troponin reflects myocardial ischemia. Thank you both for joining me today. And the conversation has been very informative. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. We appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I've been speaking with Dr. Priya Koyalpillai and Dr. Sudhir Nishtala. Dr. Coyle Pillai is a second-year internal medicine resident at the University of Calgary and has a keen interest in medical education and women's cardiovascular health. Dr. Nishtala is a former cardiac intensive care pharmacist and now a cardiology fellow at the University of Calgary Libin Cardiovascular Institute. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Maniza Walji, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thanks for listening.